KFBS. Radio 2. Sitrep with Christopher Lee. And I, I am Christopher Lee, and you, you are very welcome. And in the next 60 minutes on Sitrep, liar or genius? Why the Blair trial started this week? Hacked off General or Whitehall warrior? Why are they talking about the CGS? Killing Karachi style, killing Yemeni style. Why we should be worried in Whitehall? And why pinging elastic? is a classic Palinism. Now, more importantly, the whiff of uneasiness about the Iraq war wafts around Whitehall still. If you believe the headlines, Tony Blair's former press secretary, Alistair Campbell, is either a liar or a genius or both. Campbell was Tuesday's star of the show as the warm-up man for Blair himself is due to appear in the next couple of weeks. But for insiders... Might the real star have been the ex-head of the civil service, Lord Turnbull? Following it all this week, the political correspondent of the BBC World Service, Rob Watson. Rob, uh, let's put you in context. I like to do that in this new year because um, United Nations, Washington correspondent, defence correspondent, now watching the politics. You've been right the way through this. Pretty much most of it. It started out with the, with the UN side of things. I was there in 94 to 99, so one of the big stories that I covered was the, the general chasing around that the UN weapons inspectors did in Iraq and the amount of concealment they'd uncovered and the kind of doubts that they had remaining. All the way through, as you say, to defence correspondent until recently, where one of the things that, that I had picked out in, in my coverage was this sort of sense certainly amongst the uniformed military that they had been let down by Whitehall, they'd been let down by a government that had, whose strategy in, in Iraq as they saw it was how do we get out not how do we win. Okay listen, um, this week uh, spotlight on Campbell but let's start right at the beginning of the week, uh, Lieutenant General Sir Richard uh, Sheriff who was the GOC, the multinational division southeast, that was in what, 2006 to 2007 and he said at the inquiry this week of the Chilcot inquiry on, uh, into Iraq, he said that when he arrived in Basra, British Army was providing no security at all. 200 troops were attempting to control a city of, what, 1.3 million people? That's a bit scary. Absolutely, and, and he's echoed, really, some of the complaints that we've heard from other people at the inquiry, and, and certainly, as we were just discussing, some of the military commanders who have I've spoken to as we tried to kind of get to grips with what went wrong in Iraq but certainly his his testimony seemed pretty damning as you say the first thing that he came up with was describing how little the British forces were doing or how little they were capable of doing how few, how given how few there were and given that the kind of scale of the problem they were facing but but essentially you know he made some of these points that we've discussed before number one he, he pretty much said and this is a quote that it was clear to him he said that we had a strategy involving extraction rather than mission success he went on also to talk about what he called a lack of unity of person of, of purpose among government departments and again we've heard this this complaint from the uniform military serving in iraq that it didn't really seem like the foreign office the ministry of defense or the department for international development really had their act together and that really they saw iraq as something that you were sort of soldiering on rather than trying to win uh, fascinating, his ideas, uh, General uh, Sheriff's ideas that, um, for example, senior commanders ought to be there for much longer than a six-month tour, but soldiers know. Absolutely. There was this sense of, of continuity, and of course it contrasts with what was happening in, in the US military in Iraq and of course now in Afghanistan where you're seeing troops and certainly their commanders serving long, long tours of duty and of course 
one of the things that's been raised in, in the newspaper coverage is, was, uh, was General Sir Richard uh, trying to make some hints about what he thought should happen in Afghanistan, where again, we've heard these complaints that, that you get a commander who's beginning to know some of the tribal elders that he needs to do business with, and as soon as he's done that, and as soon as he's made connections with some of the Afghan National Army people that are trying to be trained up, that they're shipped out. Um, I suppose we'd better turn to uh, Alistair Campbell now. The Daily Express, I mean, there he was. He was there all day in front of the Chilcot Inquiry. Uh, um, astonishing performance, absolutely in command, or so he would see it. The Daily Express called Campbell a liar. Why would they do that? Well, I guess you'd have to ask the editor of the Daily Express. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right in the way you, you characterise that the newspaper coverage there's been, and, and let's face it, it's been pretty extensive of Alistair Campbell's performance, ranging from m- most of the papers saying that he'd, that he'd pretty much got the, the inquiry tied in knots, and, of course, allegations that uh, he failed to, to come clean, as some newspaper editors and newspapers see it. But... Watching for the five hours myself, I, I would certainly agree with the newspaper coverage that he was seemed to be very much in command of his brief. He didn't give an inch apart from perhaps saying that the 45-minute warning could have been a bit more caveated, but he was he was totally, uh, totally unrepentant, I guess, as commentators would say it. I think the one episode in the whole five hours that really struck me was his argument that... Uh, that the dossier that was made in September 2002, it had never intended to be a case for war to persuade the British people that should push come to shove, it was worth going to war. But the, the sort of phrasing he used is it was just a way of, of showing the British people what was on Tony Blair's mind, why he was concerned about Iraq, what the, what the intelligence basis for that was. And I suspect that an awful lot of people watching the inquiry would say that was a bit of a stretch. Mm. I thought the most interesting character this week... Uh, it was uh, it was really was the ex head of the civil service, Lord Butler. Now, for the people who don't know um, the permanent uh, secretary, he is, or the cabinet secretary, he is the person in number ten who is the real life Sir Humphrey, the man who gives impartial civil service advice to the PM. It was an astonishing performance, wasn't it? Absolutely, and I think people have really latched on to that. And again, to run through some of the key points that that were made there, first of all about the legal advice and the point that was made at the inquiry was that it had changed substantially between what Lord Goldsmith had said, then the Attorney General in the first instance, which was very caveated that, yes, it could be be legal to go to war, but it would be better to get UN approval, to what was finally presented to the Cabinet, which was that, yes, pretty much a one-liner, it is legal, we can go ahead. Also interesting, of course, the way in which he he described the the way Tony Blair dealt with the issue of Iraq, that he tried to keep debate on it as, as perfunctory as possible, and that those who disagreed with the idea of the war were pretty much frozen out from contact with Tony Blair. One other point that he made that I guess will resonate, will resonate, it has that kind of phrase, doesn't it, where he said that there was just this incredible lack of imagination about the possible downsides of invading Iraq. And he said about the only person that he accepted from this lack of imagination was Robin Cook. Mm, the late Robin Cook. Then you say something about it's a pity he can't be here. It was to a pity sort of that he wasn't, that he couldn't be there to get some of the credit. Yeah. Um, Rob, next week, um, Jonathan Powell, the chief of staff to the prime minister, but there's a, a, uh, and also um, um, the former defence secretary, Jeff Hoon, coming up next week. That's going to be good. 
Well, I'm not sure if you've noticed it, but the, uh, the, the Times has been doing a little uh, a guide to the forthcoming witnesses by having the, the explosive, explosive rating, and it's got little sticks of dynamite, uh, sticks of dynamite by them for those, uh, those listening who haven't been following the Times' coverage. And I think Jeff Hoon got a five sticks of dynamite because presumably he's going to talk, one, one's just guessing here, but he may well express frustration about the planning side of the war leading up to the invasion of Iraq and presumably about the resourcing. And and I guess one would expect him to perhaps point fingers at the now Prime Minister, but then Chancellor Gordon Brown saying, you know, we just didn't get the resources, the cash that that we were looking for. And the um, the Hoon-Brown relationship is certainly not made in heaven. Not made in heaven, no, Christopher. (laughs) Uh, Rob Watson, thank you very much. Perhaps talk to you next week, see what happens next week. Look forward Uh, to it. Good. With me in the studio from University College London, Dr. Martin McCauley and the former Daily Mail diplomatic editor John Dickey and the editor-in-chief of Stirring Trouble Internationally and former Kremlin foreign policy advisor, Alexander Nekrasov. Um, Alexander, just thinking about uh, the Iraq inquiry and Alistair Campbell, I mean, you, 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 have, uh, you feel quite strongly high opinions of Alistair Campbell, don't you? Well, I don't like him very much, but... Um, so not I, I, such high opinions. <laughs> I, 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 in a sense, you know, I, I think of him as a Grigory Rasputin of the Blair's administration because he, he is basically the, the main manipulator. And uh, what he realized, like I realized in my days in the Kremlin, you know, I had my own opinion of my bosses. He realized very quickly that Blair was very insecure. He needed somebody to play with his ideas, you know, and, 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 and Alistair Campbell was there for him. And basically what I saw at this inquiry is that uh, Campbell was afraid. I could sense this. And, and this phrase which I picked up, and I was astonished by it, when he said, basically, I was just a hack, you know, I was not a government advice, a government official or anything. I had no experience in government. I thought, aha, interesting. You're already backtracking on that. Yes. John Dickey, you, you wouldn't be so strongly against Alistair Campbell? Well, that's not the Alistair Campbell I know, and I worked with him for many years as a journalist. I think I may correct you on a point of nomenclature. Hmm. You described him as the press secretary of the Prime Minister. Well, he was press secretary from 1997, when Blair became Prime Minister, till 2001, but then it changed so to that, the, the director of communications. Now, that's a totally different role. As director of communications, he controlled all the output, not just of number 10, but of every ministry in Whitehall. No press release could be issued unless it was synchronised to the way he wanted it. He wouldn't have the Foreign Office make an announcement on a Tuesday if the Minister of Defence was already scheduled to do that. And he had control of all the press officers, including the one at the Foreign Office, who for the first time in all my experience was not a member of the diplomatic service. He was a man called John Williams, a former deputy political editor of the Evening Standard. So he would uh, naturally take all direction from uh, Alistair Campbell. Now, Alistair Campbell's performance, in my view, was a bravura one, because he wasn't there to give the objective account of what happened during this perilous times. He was there to justify the action of the Prime Minister and I thought he did that very cleverly. There were one or two big mistakes in the process but nonetheless he stood by all the inquisition. There was only one of the inquisitors who got near him and that was Sir Roderick Lyne, the former ambassador in Moscow. He questioned how he used the phrase beyond doubt about the question of weapons. Yes, Yes, because intelligence is never beyond doubt. But the odd thing about his position again was he was chairing the meeting 
meeting uh, with the intelligence people, with that John was astonishing, Stalin. wasn't it? Now, I mean, why should a man with presentational skills be the one determining the order of business at such an important meeting with all the uh, intelligence <laughs> officials there? He should have been there in the sidelines saying, well, I think if you ask but me... That, that's it's signal the collapse of authority, basically, because you can't have a hack sitting and telling the intelligence people but how he, to present no, the information. No, 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 it's, it's news management. You're seeing for the first time really in British politics a non-politician, non-prime minister, if you like, um, uh, waving his magic wand and bringing all the bits together. And basically, they wanted to provide the evidence uh, to support uh, war in Iraq, and the prime minister mm-hmm. wanted that. And therefore, Alistair Campbell could marshal the troops and marshal the language and so on. That seems to me a, a very, very sensible thing. If of you're course, going well, to it was very done before done. In, in, in Mrs. Thatcher's time. Bernard Thatcher had Bernard Ingham, so Bernard Ingham did the same thing. But he wasn't as politically uh, involved uh, in, as, policy making. in policy making as uh, he did, Alistair Campbell came. Alistair Campbell, incidentally, is not a Scot, despite his name. I mean, uh, <coughs> he's nothing to do with the massacre of the McDonald's at Glencoe. He played the bagpipes, but he, he came from Leicestershire and he went up to Cambridge to Gondolin Keys, took a degree, and then went into journalism there. But he, and, supports, and supports Burnley, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, well, but he's a master. He's a master journalist and master communicator. Right, yeah. John. In Washington, uh, we we sort of look at this Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq, why we went to war, and what happened when we got it, got there. Washington doesn't, doesn't actually like all this stuff too much that's coming up. Does it? No, but it's not in their tradition. It's a, it's a highly British practice to keep on. Uh, Looking at the at the ashes of, of, of previous fires and, and sort of trying to decide how the fire began and why it took this particular direction, that is not a sort of practice that the Congress in, in America goes in for, nor the presidents like it. They like to leave their libraries there, but they don't want people rummaging and producing evidence against their decisions. Right. Martin? The, the Labour government being in power before and during and after the Iraq war mm. has to manage... Mm-hmm. Uh, the process. And this is the third or fourth inquiry, isn't it? It's mm. fourth, yes. It's the fourth inquiry. In other words, you compartmentalise everything. You should have, like the Dutch, the Dutch have just had one and it was a senior judge and he took a year and they subpoenaed witnesses and they come to the conclusion the war was illegal. Uh, and mm. they subpoenaed uh, lawyers, uh, military men, government people, mm. everyone. And that's really the way to do it. Do it all mm-hmm. in one. Um, last point on this, then I want to about some entirely different or sort of different in Whitehall. Um, Alexander, what's going on in this Chilcot inquiry won't tell the aficionados, the insiders, very much that they didn't know. This inquiry, I get a sense, apart from telling us all a wonderful theatrical insight into how Whitehall works and Number 10 works, this is really for the outsiders, isn't it? If, you, if anybody wants to listen to sort of the general public, it's for them, uh, really. They're the people that are going to get far more out of this. I think you're correct. I think that everybody who had the inside information knew about those things. And uh, it's the outsiders, as you perfectly correctly point out, that they are fascinated by how, how the machine works, how the decisions are made. One of the Russians' officials, I've asked, and I said, so what are you boys thinking about the Chilcot inquiry? And they said, we're not exactly losing our sleep over it, but, he said to me, the interesting would be to see how when Labour loses the election, how it will continue, because they, they think that under Labour this inquiry will not go too far, whereas when they go... 
and lose the election on the 6th of May, they say that the inquiry will change completely and dramatically. They expect. I'm not saying it will. But I think it, it, it might become much more interesting after that, after the 6th of May. Right. Hey, listening on the line, I think, is the, the defence and security editor of The Guardian, Richard Norton-Taylor. Richard, I mean, I know we're going to be talking about something else, but this whole Chilcot inquiry, um, it, it, we start to shudder, don't we, uh, to find out how we are governed and, more importantly, how we go to war? I think so. I um, a lot of people say this is a very sort of gentlemanly uh, British way of questioning, and they call it a conversation or discussion. Actually, I think they're getting, by, by being quite um, uh, quiet uh, or quite sort of civilised, I suppose, in a way, they're drawing out much more than they otherwise would be, much more confrontational. Um, and, uh, of course, the proof is in the pudding. We've yet to get the stars. Next week, we'll get Jeff Hoon, the then Defence Secretary, Jack Straw, the then Foreign Secretary, and, of course, Blair and... Lord Goldsmith, the Attorney General. At the moment, we've had we've had quite a lot of insights, actually, and above all, the frustration of the military in and failure to plan for the aftermath of the invasion. And it's allowed. I think this inquiry has allowed people, especially former officials, it's easier for them, I suppose, to actually um, get some of their sort of frustration and, and honest frustration out into the open. Although I think some have pulled their punches. Right. Talking of frustrations and the military. Um General Sir, Richard, uh, Sir David Richards became CGS uh, last autumn, yeah? Um, the word I keep hearing um, from the think tanks, which he visits quite a lot, yeah. is that he's fed up with government's lack of strategic understanding. So he can't get what he needs to fight the war in Afghanistan. Is that yeah. what you hear? Well, we know, those who know David Richards know he's quite is a thoughtful and, and patient, uh, but also likes... Uh, man who also likes, uh, you know, a decent, honest debate about things. Now, there have been a series of speeches quite recently by the chiefs of all three services, actually. First, um, David Richards, who pretty pointedly talked about, you know, the age of state versus state conflict has gone, i.e. we're going to have more Afghan-type asymmetric things against insurgents in the future. And um, this is a dig, quite clearly a dig against the RAF fast jets, and he explicitly talked, we said we had far too many fast jets as well as far too many tanks. He talks about a horse and tank moment, uh, Richards does, and, he, and, then he, and then he queries the need for more platforms the Navy's going to get, and even Trident, and um, by implication, and the carriers and so on, and the expensive JSFs due to go on the carriers. So there's a big debate going on, because of this forthcoming defence review, of course, won't happen. No decisions will be made until after the general election anyway. But you've seen also stories about, you know, the frustration with the current chief of the defence staff, um, mm. um, Chief Marshal uh, Sir Jock Stirrup, which I think has been inspired by, by the Conservatives. Um, it was interesting that piece was, uh, a piece was written in a splash in the Times last Monday, actually, with a big thundering editorial in the Times sort of criticising Stirrup. That happened to be written after the editor of the Times had been to Helmand Province, I don't know if one, to one, one, one plus one equals two there, but uh, maybe it wasn't a coincidence. You see, the, the, we've got um, General Richards, who is not simply doing the Whitehall warrior thing, is he, in playing politics. We've got Jock Stirrup, who is, uh, people say, well, you know, he's not that communicative, uh, yeah. communicative uh, sort and, of And not guy. knocking on the door of number 10, Downing Street, soon enough. Yeah, and loud enough. But the, the of him. but uh, I think the the other thing that, that, that strikes us: everybody is looking forward uh, to a strategic defence review, yeah. which has got to be far more than can we afford tanks, can we afford aircraft. Is not only what we do with them now, 
but it's all to do with Britain's place in the world in the next 20, yeah. 25 years, isn't it? Yeah. Well, in the, in the medium term, I mean, the Green Paper will maybe address this in a sort of rather waffly essay-type language, because no decisions will be taken. The government won't even want to point a finger about which direction it's going on some of these big um, you know, procurement decisions, say, or the size of regiments or whatever. And that Green Paper is due out by the beginning of February. Before the, you know, well before the general election, the government doesn't want to say anything um, hostage to fortune, etc. So, so the decisions will come, in the, as you say, in the Strategic Defence Review, which will come pretty soon, I suppose, after the general election in uh, May or June at the latest. And then the Conservatives, if they win, said they're going to have one every uh, Parliament Defence Review. That is. Mm. Mm. Now, I mean, I mean that, that's got to. I mean, there are key. I mean, there are basic decisions, aren't there? We, the, the country's the economic sort of got the economic problems, financial problems. Um, it, it, at a time when the procurement program has, has run amok, as we all know from Bernard Gray report, from oh, everyone admits it, you know, um, publicly and privately, there's, there, there, something's got to cut back, someone's got to give, and you can't just put things to the right and delay things, because as the National Audit Office said the other day, uh, 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 delaying things doesn't save money, on the contrary. Mm. Tell so, me, you know, key decisions are going to be made, and probably more key decisions now than you know, for many, many, since it was well before the, sec- the end of the Cold War, I think. Tell me, just, just a quick one. Um, yes. uh, Sir Jock Stewart, why is, he, why is he still CDS? I don't mean shouldn't somebody have sacked him, but he has gone on for quite a long time. The short answer is that uh, General Dannett, the former head, you know, Chief of General Staff, yeah. um, uh, was, I mean, the, the original idea is that he would get the job uh, last year, but... Um, he was not. Uh, he made himself unpopular, or he became unpopular, mm. uh, for reasons we know. And um, he wasn't really diplomatic or politically astute. Some people may say. Anyway, he burnt his boats, certainly with the Labour, uh, with Labour ministers. Right. Okay. And, and the idea was, uh, and you haven't got uh, people quite ready yet. I mean, David Richards. Mm. It was the obvious choice, I suppose, to take over. There's another guy in the, in, in the, certainly in the. Um, thereabouts who could be next um, if it's going to be an, a soldier which it will be next chief of defence staff and that's uh, general Sir nick houghton the vice mm-hmm. chief of defence staff that's an interesting idea well regarded in um, mm-hmm. amongst politicians as well as uh, others be an interesting idea that you get um uh, someone like uh, general nick houghton jumping a chief of staff yeah. uh to get to get the top job uh it hasn't happened before has it i don't know actually um Certainly not in my time, not in recent years. Right. Okay. But um, people speak very highly of him. People who, who partly because I think he, some people say that there's politicians and ministers, of both uh, potential ministers and actual ones, say that I think he's a, a, probably a safer man than maybe David Richards, because they've heard David Richards already, privately at least, in the corridors of the MOD, saying some pretty uh, strident stuff about failures you suggest yourself to make decisions and uh, the right ones right richard norton taylor thank you very much indeed john one uh, small Dickie. point about cuts which surprised me in this whole episode of sir Jock stirrup was that his admission that he cut his visits to the pentagon in washington in order to save money he didn't think it necessary to go and consult with his uh, american allies on, on strategy because uh, uh, it would be better to save the money yes yes um Martin, if you go back just a, a few years, you get back to people like uh, Admiral Terence Lewin, Terry Lewin, who was 
very purple in as much that he, he deliberately, I mean, even an admiral, he didn't support the Navy's case or whatever. Um, everybody's having a go at the RAF at the moment, so it's very difficult for a chief of the defence staff to be in the RAF. It is for him because the <clears throat> war in Afghanistan is an army war, and that's where resources go, and you can't really use the Air Force except for helicopters and so on. So therefore resources have to be switched to the army, and of course the CGS, who's his Air Force, if you like, is sitting in an iceberg. Okay, talking about icebergs, um, uh, as some of us in the UK have been sitting in mini icebergs, and one of the things that struck me was energy supplies and the importance of energy supplies. Now, Martin, um, am I wrong to try and link this to the Ukraine, where there is an election uh, uh, due? Um, yes and no, because... <laughs> ah, yes, Putin, repeat, no. Yeah, Putin, Putin says there will not be any... Uh, uh, energy crisis this winter. Now, explain, you've got to explain to people why I might think that Ukraine <laughs> and energy have something to do with There has with been this. one before. What uh, Putin's and Gazprom's strategy in Ukraine is to take over the pipelines. And the pipelines go through the, the Ukraine. The pipelines go through Ukraine to Eastern Europe. And, and these are the cent- Russian pipelines. Central Europe. Gazprom is the big uh, supplier, the big Russian monopoly supplier. Uh, and if they can get hold of the pipelines, uh, then they can cut out Ukraine. Right. Uh, and they're trying to do the same thing with Belarus. Where, where pipelines go through to Poland and so on. So Gazprom and the Russians would like to control the, the, those pipelines. Now, if you control the pipelines, uh, then you don't have a crisis, but you manufacture a crisis in order to acquire control over the, over the pipelines because you tell the outside world that only your control of the pipelines will guarantee supplies because those Ukrainians and the others can't be trusted because uh, they're so short of money, they take gas out of the pipelines and so on. So you put it... Blame it on the on the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians say the opposite, so you're back to square one. And we ought to, uh, or or is it just a complete sort of red herring, uh, Alexander? We ought to be worried about that, about the future supplies of gas. Yes, <clears throat> I think so because uh, unlike you know global warmists who predict. Uh, mild winters for the next 10 years. I, I think that we'll have quite a cold winter next year as well. And I think that the Russians playing those games, you know, like Martin mentioned, they sometimes get carried are away. Are playing games? Well, they are playing games because this is, uh, these are all games. And the Ukrainian government is playing games because of the elections and uh, the Russians are playing games. The Russians seem to be losing in playing those games. They already lost billions and billions of, 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 of dollars and so on in revenues. But uh, uh, the problem is that Gazprom, this vast, huge state-owned monopoly, <laughs> which provides the gas to Europe, is run by people who have no understanding of how to run any company, even a small company. And unfortunately, that's one of the major problems. John Dickey. Yet the Russians seem to be in a, in a very good position as far as these presidential elections coming on Sunday, because... Uh, they have the Ukraine the two, in, in the Ukraine. In Ukraine, they have the two leading candidates, Yanukovych, the man uh, <coughs> who uh, rigged the elections in uh, six years ago and uh, allowed the Orange Revolution to take place. But Putin has had a meeting with uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, the other leading candidate, and come to terms with her. So either way, I think whoever he quite likes her, doesn't he? Well, there was a time when, as Alexander well knows, that she was unable to go to Moscow because there was a legal action over her head. But now she's uh, come to terms, modifying her results. But it means that whatever way the election goes between these two candidates, 
they're not going to be looking to the West as much as they have been. They'll be looking more to, to Moscow. Right. Yeah, I think Yulia Tymoshenko, she's playing both ends of the, the game. It's a seesaw game. Sometimes she goes to Moscow, she gets what she wants, and next time she gets nothing and so on. So the Russians are playing the game as well. But there's going to be a runoff between Yanukovych, mm. who's seen as more pro-Russian, and Tymoshenko. And Tymoshenko, I think, is concerned about power. Mm. She wants to become president, and she will do a deal. She's like Blair. She will change sides the moment, yes, if, you know, it suits if, her. So. If the deal involves uh, making concessions to Putin, who's the real boss of Russia, she'll make those concessions mm-hmm. because that'll put her in power uh, and that's really what she wants. This is real politics. This is real words. politics. Okay. It's real politics. Listen, um, I want to sh- shift to two places. One is Karachi, one is Yemen. Um, Pakistan, I think the United Kingdom's crucial ally, we can call it, um, in the, in, in the war in Afghanistan, really still is uh, Pakistan. And five bullet-riddled bodies have been found in the southern Pakistan city of Karachi. I think more than 30, uh, Martin, more than 30 people have died in these killings, sort of killings, since 1st of January. Yes. 1st of January. Um, what's going on there? <clears throat> Basically, uh, you've got a very weak government, um, which... Uh, doesn't really have the control of the military. Then you've got the uh, intelligence service, the ISI. And there are many people who think that ISI would like a Taliban victory in Afghanistan. Why? Because that would prevent the Indians increasing their influence. The ISI sees Karzai as basically favouring the Indians and so on. Uh, and then the Pakistani army, army um, they are ambivalent. They say India is the main enemy and we shouldn't really be fighting the Taliban. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, government is basically losing, gradually losing, I think, control. Right. Uh, let's talk about the Yemen. Uh, John Dickey, the alleged, I suppose we ought to call him the alleged leader of an al-Qaeda cell in Yemen, uh, has been killed. Um, and according to a provincial governor, Abdullah Mahada is said to have been the leader of the al-Qaeda group mm. in the province. Uh, tell us what's going on there. Well, it's just the beginning of, I think, a great deal of revenge strikes because uh, the uh, al-Qaeda are now in tremendous strength in in the Yemen. Uh, There must be over 100 in various cells uh, outside uh, Sana'a, the capital. And uh, I think the very fact that that um, killing took place will just spur them on to strike back. And I think it's going to be very difficult to... uh, control uh, the, the sort of uh, inter-factional um, fighting that's going to take place. It's very mm. difficult, isn't it, Martin, that um, uh, presumably the American special forces, <coughs> etc., are in there, in the Yemen, and, you know, once that's exposed in a big way, that doesn't look good for the president, who they, really is our boy. Now, they dare not, the American special forces dare not engage in a direct conflict, mm. on in direct combat, they can only there to train the Yemeni forces. And what you remember, the president of Yemen has done a deal uh, with al-Qaeda in Yemen, mm-hmm. that al-Qaeda it will be left alone and al-Qaeda will leave the president and his people alone, uh, providing they don't attack one another. And uh, what's happened, apparently, is uh, they've broken this deal uh, and attacked the, the, uh, uh, the attempt to bring the plane down over Detroit apparently we broke that deal. Uh, so Al-Qaeda is in fact operating now from Yemen, outside Yemen and so on. And one should look at Yemen. Yemen is in fact two states, the northern mm-hmm. state and the southern state. The southern state was a Marxist-Leninist, really violent. It used communist. to be ours. I mean, ours, the British Aiden, used to be Aiden. Aiden. It was Aiden. It was a really violent Marxist-Leninist state. 
Uh, and the Russians really couldn't control them because they solved their uh, political problems by killing one another. And Yemen has something like 60, 60 million weapons. It's the most armed country in the world. And nobody in his right mind would go in there and start fighting because if you look at the terrain, it's mountainous. Uh, and Al-Qaeda is allowed certain areas mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, and uh, Osama bin Laden has made quite clear that his main target is not America but Saudi Arabia. Right. You know, the, the, Rus- the Russians were monitoring the situation and they said to me, how come it happened that this Nigerian, you know, 24-year-old, 23-year-old terrorist goes in into, into a North plane, by, by the way, buys a ticket with cash, one way, no luggage. Mm. They let him through, nobody notices anything, mm. then he wants to blow up. And they said, how come the Americans mm. only then realized that Yemen posed a problem? And everybody knew that. It was, it was not a secret that the Al-Qaeda were training people there, that they had, you know, all those cells there and so on. So Americans, in a, in a way, as, we, as Russians see it, are responding to events after... No, they happen. They don't really forecast the events. And uh, basically, this has been going on in and, the Yemen uh, since yeah. two thousand. Sana was Sir Jeffrey Howe's foreign safety. Uh, when was that? Well, that was uh, must 20, be years 20 ago. Years ago. And uh, we saw uh, President Saleh there, and he kept on saying, "I'm in charge. I'm in charge." And we kept on saying, "But what about all the lawlessness we hear outside?" Uh, oh, that—that's nothing. That'll be controlled. He's still unable to control and, and, his own and, country. But he's still there after what thirty-one yeah. years, yeah. thirty-two yeah. years. And one Russian military man said to me, "Look," he said, "After the Iraqi war, there's about one." billion Muslims who want to have a go at America. So if they start searching you know, where they are hiding, they're everywhere he says. So they have to think of other ways maybe changing their policy a bit and so on. So I think there has to be some sense of reality brought to Washington. Because what the Martin was talking about, basically civil war in Pakistan. Now who started the war? The Americans who pressed the Pakistani government to start a war with the Taliban. So, you know, it, it, basically, as the, the Kremlin views it now at the moment, American foreign policy is non-existent. It, 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 they don't really know how, what to do. They, they still keep the defense secretary from the previous administration. They can't even find the proper defense secretary. So what, what can you expect from these people? Okay. Uh, i tell you what we can expect. My goodness, we're late. It's... Uh 37 minutes, just coming up to 37 minutes past the hour. It's also time for Sit Rep Overheard, the part of the programme when we think aloud and sometimes sideways about the bigger stories. If you've missed anything so far, just go to bfbs.com forward slash sitrep and listen again or podcast. Now with me in the Sit Rep uh, roundtable still, Martin McCauley from the University College London, John Dickey, the former diplomatic diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail and the former Kremlin advisor and now editor-in-chief of the website Stirring Trouble Internationally, Alexander Nekrasov. I want to take another look at the Alistair Campbell story, uh, John. I mean, it's, it's, I'm curious still why he aroused so much media coverage and is probably the only publicly interesting person so far at the inquiry. I Why? think because he was one of the media himself for so long uh, with the uh, Daily Mirror and he was also on the BBC presenting the week in Westminster and uh, for a lot of his uh, former colleagues resent the fact that uh, he is now uh, transferred to a different level and as I was saying, a director of communications. But he's become you know, part of the policy making. This is what I find extraordinary about his performance uh, in the inquiry. There he was quite blithely saying that you know, the, there were letters sent by uh, Blair to um, President Bush after the famous Crawford meeting. Mm. And uh, 
these letters were not made known to the Foreign Secretary, nor the Defence Secretary. But of course, Campbell knew about them. I mean, this is an extraordinary way to run a government that, you know, there's so, no collective responsibility in the Cabinet at all. Certain ministers in the, in the Cabinet were not in the loop. So, in, 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 in sense, he is, as I think we've described him before, he's the warm-up man f- for Tony Blair whenever he appears. Uh, and it's we're interested because we believe he is the only person, the only person in the whole government that knew the inside of the mind of, of, of Tony Blair, Martin. Yes, um, because Tony Blair um, says he's a man of conviction. But basically, his, his his main conviction is to stay in power and to please everyone. If you like, he's a consensus, consensus man. And a consensus man basically doesn't have any very, very strong ideas. Uh, he doesn't think in one, two, three. Uh, and therefore, he's open to uh, influence. And that's where Campbell comes in. Now, had the Prime Minister been someone like Mrs. T, Mrs. Thatcher, or some other dominant personality, he wouldn't have played that role. Uh, she would have squashed him and said, uh, Alistair, that's my business. You don't decide that. But uh, Tony, as Alexander said, wanted someone to say, yes, Tony, that's right, and so on. And if you do that, it'll be even better. Yeah, which proves that he was very insecure. Blair. Yeah. But then you see, most, most politicians, most prime ministers should be insecure. The danger comes when he's absolutely convinced he's right on every issue. We want somebody who's insecure and willing to take advice. But, but Tony's different from the others but, because but, he doesn't have the, any of these strong convictions. But you couldn't, you, you had to have a heart of stone not to laugh when, when uh, Alistair Campbell said, we didn't, we didn't really pay much attention to the 45 minutes. I mean, we didn't understand why the papers picked this. Uh, and, and of course, the committee was sitting sort of half smiling. They, oh, sure, sure, you didn't. And I'm, I'm sorry, but at, at, a, at, at such a level of inquiry, you, you can't get away with things like that. You can't just expect people yeah. to, to, to be that silly. Can I take this outside of the inquiry? Um, and it's not a nostalgia kick because, after all, this is seven, eight years ago, the period we're talking about. Um, the Blair-Campbell thing was interesting, wasn't it? It was, in many ways, it aroused all sorts of different emotions. It was exciting. Whereas at the moment, politics, unless there is a sleaze thing going on with all MPs, who are sleazebags, apparently... Um, it's not interesting. Rory, I, I sort of long for the Rory, Blair Campbell. Rory Bremner picked this up beautifully. Remember how he parodied Blair? No, no, no. Go on, tell us. No, on Can Channel Four. Voice? And on Channel Four. No, they 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 made up those dialogues between Blair oh, and yes, Campbell, yes, yes, yes. and it was brilliant. He he basically showed Campbell uh, telling Blair what to do. Yes, but wait, wait a minute. What I'm getting at is that it's actually it was all it was all quite exciting. You had a, you had a. It, they rouse your feelings. You think, oh, Blair, Campbell, it, it, it's something wrong here. But we don't get that sort of sense I, now. I haven't seen any like it since the Suez affair, when the general public got so engrossed in all the details of, of foreign policy. Since then, foreign policy hasn't mattered a, a jot in the elections. But now, the revival of the uh, Iraq drama has seized upon people. Yes, but don't forget the important thing. He dragged Brown into this whole situation. And that's probably the only yes, brilliant he thing he, he did, heart, that he, he was, was involved in every, fear, yeah. every stage of discussion. Mm. And Brown, as I hear, is not very happy with that and his people, because that probably is the main damage that he did. And that's why Brown. Rob Watson was highlighting the fact that when Jeff Hoon appears uh, next week, 
he will have plenty of ammunition. He's going to get Brown going over. Brown's so. refusal to authorise expenditure on helicopters way back in 2002 when they would have been very important for the initial stages of the fighting in Afghanistan. Do you know, um, something else that came from this, uh, the Chilcot inquiry, um, to me anyway, is that the is the way diplomats and intelligence people did not get it right about Saddam Hussein and Iraq. Uh, not all the time, anyway. On the line, the editorial director of cross-border information, John Marks. Hello. Hello, John. Just in, in, in spite of what we've been doing in the Middle East for just about 100 years and longer in Egypt and Sudan, we still don't get it right about them, the area, do we? This is an opportunity to upset and alienate a few old friends, isn't it? <laughs> we certainly don't. Um, I think the, um, the Iraq inquiry and all those impulses that um, took Tony Blair in there actually highlight some of the reasons why not. I mean, I mean, firstly, these are very opaque and difficult societies to get into. So even those people who get closest to them um, don't necessarily have the correct sources, the correct networks to actually gain the information. Um, that was certainly true of uh, Saddam's Iraq. Getting intelligence was extremely difficult, but it was not impossible. And if you looked at the time, as, as we all did, at the actual evidence that was available to us mere mortals, and that we didn't perhaps believe the more politically inspired things that were coming out, it was fairly clear that the threat wasn't anything like um, it, it was said. And, and that brings me to my other point, is that the fact is that very often in intelligence gathering, and I think particularly if you're a strong, shall we say in this case, post-imperial power, but someone who sits permanently around the UN Security Council, we really are projecting a lot of our own wishes and, and wants onto the relatively limited information and partial information that we get. And I think that has forever been a problem, and, and that is why we keep on making some really bad um, foreign policy, uh, some very bad foreign policy calls. Whereas if, quite frankly, you're just on the ground hanging around in the cafes talking to people, you can actually see, well, the world here, viewed from, say, Baghdad, um, Tehran, Cairo, or whatever, isn't as we're seeing it, and as our politicians are seeing it, as, as they, as they, they um, filter out the facts to create policy. But, you know, I remember um, Mrs Thatcher, as then she was as Prime Minister, turning around to her Foreign Secretary and saying, fundamentally saying, look, the Foreign Office has nobbled you, they're all Arabists in there, they're camels. The Camel Corps. The Camel Corps. Um, but if we had that sort of reputation, or in the Foreign Office they had that reputation, how come again that they weren't able to or don't read uh, the signs so easily as somebody sitting, as you say, in a Baghdad or a Lebanese cafe. Well, of course, some of them read the signs extremely well. It just depends how, the, how much the dispatch that comes from the ambassador's office is actually read um, at the foreign office, but also outside. And there is a problem there because we look at the foreign office and all its might and those wonderful buildings in King Charles Street as representing this really large, powerful... Um, organization. But in fact, the Foreign Office is, um, as people, I think, with inside the office might argue themselves, um, a fairly diminished department of government. There have been um, very, you know, few great foreign secretaries in recent years. And more and more, foreign policy has been taken over by the Margaret Thatchers. And particularly in the case of, of Tony Blair, who in terms of being a foreign policy analyst was actually extremely poor but was i'd say a very 
ideological player. They're absolutely the fit counterparts to work with George Bush, who he probably felt Blair that he was much more intelligent than than Bush and could manipulate that relationship anyway. But the fact is that the Foreign Office was telling Blair things. There were independent analysts who were called in before the invasion to talk to Blair, and everyone was saying the same thing, which is Saddam Hussein isn't the threat you want, and if you um, unleash a war, that you are going to um, have a lot of unintended consequences. Not actually as some of the ones that we've thought, but still, that it was going to be very bad. But Blair was set in his way. What this tells us about the politics is, even when the diplomats get it right, and they certainly don't get it right all the time, uh, it's not at all sure that what they're saying is going to be taken on board and accepted. So I think that there's been uh, a lot of accidents along the way. And between what people actually know, the um, extent to which the people who actually know things are able to influence policy is very limited. The great Arabists may exist, may have existed in Britain, but they didn't necessarily call the right side. Um, and if they did, then they lost out um, on the political front. As so many of the, uh, the legends of uh, the, the Arab part of the world, T. Lawrence, St. John Philby, etc., um, their histories would attest. Mm. But, I mean, I was thinking uh, one of the first people to give evidence to the Chilcot inquiry uh, was Sir William Patey. Mm. Um, fine Arabist ran, I think, the Middle East Department uh, at the Foreign Office uh, in 2003? Yes. 2002, 2003. And, and had several interesting ambassadorships during his... Uh, including, including Baghdad, of course. Including Baghdad and, and Sudan. Yeah. Now, there is a man, and he's no dummy. Uh, he is no person for... Uh, I mean, he's a, he's a big guy. Uh, could have played for Scotland and prop forward. Um, and he's not frightened of anybody. And yet he wasn't listened to. Now, when I couple that with listening to Lord Butler, uh, when was it? Yesterday I was listening to Lord Butler in the, at the inquiry, who was saying that once, once uh, the Prime Minister had made up his mind, then there's nothing we could say to him. And in that conference you were talking about of the, the sort of foreign policy wonks, that was November, I think, November 2002. doesn't matter what they said, the Prime Minister decided. Now, isn't that what he's Prime Minister for? Well, he was prime, prime Minister in a system of cabinet government and consensus government, and after all, they're there as the head of a political party that should be feeding advice um, of various sorts up to him. Yes, it should have been consensual, but the fact is that in, in the case of Blair, certainly in the case of Iraq, um, it, I never saw, as, as I'm sure everyone else here, never saw during that whole period of the build-up to war um, any suggestion that Tony Blair was listening. He would politely look at you and smile, just indeed as Jack Straw would do. Um, they did, certainly didn't look as uncomfortable as Gordon Brown did while he was listening. And, um, but the fact is that the policy agenda had been made, and we are talking, going away possibly from foreign policy and coming back to the, uh, the domestic agenda, but we're talking about um, presidential prime ministers, surely, and therefore they don't necessarily have to listen. Tony Blair, I think, took it upon himself, and it's in a model that we've seen from Thatcher and, and others, that the buck would uh, stop with him, and it was his decision. So I think, actually, consensus and listening to people who possibly knew the region more was subsumed to his own personal ideas. At times, you know, it worked superbly. Um, the British intervention in Sierra Leone, you know, is still a model of foreign intervention. Personally, I've always thought, when in doubt, stay out. These are difficult and dangerous places once you're 
engaged. But the fact is engagement can work. Sierra Leone, Kosovo were actually, um, were actually models, particularly Sierra Leone, of what can happen and where we've actually made the world a better place and in a country where Britain actually owes a, owes a debt. Now, the fact is that by the time that policy unwound in Iraq, the policy had got much more politicised. The American alliance had come into play and the extreme presidentialization, if you can use that word, mm. of the British, um, of, of Number 10 Downing Street had come into play. And so a lot of the old checks and balances, I would say, have gone. And looking at it from a foreign policy perspective, as with a domestic foreign policy perspective, in an unwritten constitution, when you lose your traditional checks and balances, then whoever's giving you advice, I'd say you're going to have quite a lot of trouble. Yeah. John, John, stay with us a moment, John Marks. Um, Martin McCauley. I want to make the point that Tony Blair once admitted he knew history. And he said he was lost when the, when the historians started talking. And he said he should have studied history at university. In other words, if you have somebody... You mean it was too late once he'd left? It was too late. You can't, you can't, at that age, you can't really learn because your mind is fixed. And uh, therefore, an historian would have been aware of the last hundred years in the Middle East uh, and all the travels and all the problems of the Arab world and so on. And he was just unaware of those things. Right. Uh, uh, you know, as a former advisor myself, I, I must tell you something, that this, this, this inclination of supporting the view of your boss is very strong. Intelligence, foreign policy advisors, and so on and so on. And that's why Putin, uh, sorry, Yeltsin, invented us special advisors. We were above that. We, were, we, we, didn't, we didn't depend on the bureaucracy. We said what we thought. And uh, with Blair, all those people are now in Chilcot Inquiry saying, well, we were against that and that. I don't think so. There was actually quite a big, big chunk of those advisors who were saying, yes, Prime Minister, you're correct, Prime Minister, the danger is huge. And I suspect even the intelligence community probably was singing the same tune because the boss wanted so. This strong inclination is there all the time. John, can I just raise something which, um, uh, which uh, sorry, that's John, John Dickey, which John Marks raised. Um, and that is the role, in fact, of the Foreign Office now. Um, I... And a lot of people say, well, you know, the, the role of the foreign office is diminished and the people don't talk about them any, uh, talk to them uh, so, so, so much as they once did. What do well, you think? Well, currently the, the balance is against the foreign office largely because of the person who's foreign secretary. His uh, ambitions to succeed as uh, leader of the Labour Party and if possible uh, the prime minister of this country have twice been the subject of great controversy here and therefore... His influence in Cabinet is now substantially reduced, but it was the same under Jack Straw. He was, again, a weak uh, foreign secretary, but there have been strong ones in as much as you had Geoffrey Howe and Douglas Hand, who are uh, authoritative uh, foreign secretaries with the knowledge of, of the world. But, but I, I was told mm. that Geoffrey Howe never took a decision abroad. Uh, when there was a question came up, he phoned the Foreign Office, what shall I do? He, he oh, no, I travelled with, uh, with him. He had all his advisers there. He had uh, Rod Lyon, who is now ambassador in Moscow. He had uh, um, Derek Thomas, the political director. I mean, there were constantly discussions going on on the VC-10 plane as we went round the world. They were analysing the telegrams that come in and analysing the situation as explained by the ambassador on the spot. Oh, no, he was a man who could make decisions, as you find out, over the Hong Kong affair. He took the decisions, not Thatcher. Right, John Marks, uh, just a, a final thought on this. Um, I, was, I was thinking that the Blair Witch trial, as we must probably call it, um, uh, you know, Blair is 
guilty until proven innocent. And part of that reason is that we... I wonder if we, if we now believe anything our government says anymore. Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, I think you can rebuild a consensus in the political system. Uh, I was thinking about actually watching a documentary about President Obama in the States um, the other day and thinking back to uh, America when I first knew it, which was just after Watergate and when you'd never believe anything at all. And actually, there's a huge degree of um, consensus, you might argue, over many issues. But it's true, people don't believe in government like they did before, even though the government, I'd say, has a has a larger uh, larger place in, in people's imaginings and life than I, it possibly ever has before. I, I sometimes wonder whether it has indeed. The government has re- replaced uh, God as the person that we ask for last, <laughs> as, uh, as, as indeed the solution of last resort. Um, the, the government is everywhere. The problem is that with the Blair in Iraq, and yeah, I, I was always cynical. I always have, like very many people. Um, and and the fact is that we were consistently lied to, uh, and uh, that in many times politicians, over a long period of time, but of, of late on big decisions, have lied to us. Clearly, what Alistair Campbell said about the letters um, and the period leading up to the Iraq invasion the other day confirms the fact that what the Prime Minister was telling Parliament and through Parliament, the British people, was not actually what was going on. And that, I, I'm afraid, is a lie. So why should we trust? Right. John Marks, thank you very much indeed. Uh, talking of trust and human rights, etc., Martin, very quickly, um, Google. I mean, Google's a remarkable organisation. Ten years ago, we'd never heard of it, right? Um, now it's a verb. They're in China. They're thinking of pulling out of China because the Chinese are corrupting Google. That ain't going to happen, is it? But it tells us something that's going on in the great Internet world. Yes, uh, and the Chinese have to think about this because uh, the, the, the terms such as Tibetan independence, Dalai Lama, um, uh, things like that, and Tiananmen Square in 1988, 89, these are the three that they wish to excise. But any clever Chinese can get software which gets around that, I'm told, and it all comes from Hong Kong. So therefore, if you like, Google is going through uh, an exercise at, at present. I think for the American public and for the American president saying, look, we defend democracy, we defend human rights, uh, and we are very good boys. We made concessions in 2006 when we went in because that was the only way we could get in. But now uh, we're so big that they really have to make concessions to us. But you see, what I'm getting at here is that we, because it's so easy, Alexander and uh, and John Dickey, um, we go on to Google. We say, well, Google it to find out. And yet we're drawing ourselves in or we're getting into something which is which is far more sinister, or am I being... Yes, I think you're correct. I mean, it is sinister once you get into, you know, into this depth of things. And uh, I think there are many, many, many agendas on the Internet, which we don't really understand. And uh, especially, you know, there are cunning marketing ploys to drag you into buying things and so on and so on. See, this, this, John, sort of makes the whole Chilcot thing with Campbell and Blair. It's, it's, it's... uh, Normal. 
It's normal, isn't it? Well, it is sinister in as much as there are 330 million uses uh, in China and therefore there's $1 billion worth of money to be made. And not uh, one of them's heard of Alistair Campbell. Not one of them, but they will. <laughs> they, they, will, will. they will. Listen, i tell you who they have heard, I hope, because she's the one person we can trust. Uh, and that's <laughs> Ms. Sarah Palin, the Alaskan oh. hockey mom who nearly made it to the White House and may still do next time round, you know, you never know. As you know, no Ms. Way. Palin has been no nominated way. for the... Hang on. Ms. Palin has been nominated for the Fast Eddie Award as SIPREP's most quotable personality and who is not quoting Sarah Palin as if you ate the front husky, then the view's always the same. And here's the latest. Do you want to hear the latest? Sitting around on your butt doesn't ping any elastic. Now, I, I've got so, one. Come on. I've got one. A U is not a tree. Eh? A U is not a tree. Do you mean as in ba or, or yeah, me? Bah. Right. Anybody got anything? Now, I know you won't, because uh, you don't even rate her as a person, do you, Alexander? No, I don't. I'm no. sorry. John? I'm sorry. No, no, I, I leave that to you. You have a special affair with her, I realise that. But well, if you want to nominate your mm. best Sarah appealing quote, especially as you, um, if you happen to be an Alaskan dog sled team driver, just go to bfbs.com forward slash sitrep and do that anyway, and you can listen again to the Who Sitrep show. Now, what I simply want to tell you, remind you, sitting around on your butt doesn't ping any elastic. I mean, you won't hear that at the Chilcot Inquiry. That's it for this week. My thanks to John Dickey, Alexander Nekrasov, who doesn't like Sarah Palin, um, and to Martin McCauley. We're here same time next week when we're back on BFBS Radio 2. It's good, isn't it? At four o'clock UK time, of course, well, three minutes after the news. Until next Thursday, I'm Christopher Lee. Uh, Mary's in the hut in the BFBS 2 Radio Hut. Bye now. with Christopher Lee.